Isaiah 61. Last week we, uh, we began our study in Isaiah 61 and we only accomplished one verse, uh, at least in our study. And so tonight we want to continue on from there. And I'd like to read the first three verses once again. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. We began our study in verse 1 last week, focusing our attention on the declaration that Jesus made of this prophecy in the Gospel of Luke to identify Himself as the Messiah of Israel. And considering the place where He stopped reading from the scroll to point out the purpose of His coming the first time, His first coming, which was to preach the good news, to heal the brokenhearted, and to set captives free. We concentrated on the passage being linked to the year of Jubilee from Leviticus 25, and we emphasized the love and the care that God has for His people, Israel. And I think if we just want to take for a moment uh, this this passage once again to, to focus on those things that Jesus said He came to do, To preach good tidings to the poor. In other words, to preach and to gladden with good news. To heal the brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to captives. The opening of the prison to those who are bound. Jesus actually said to open the eyes of the blind. And to think that this is something that most people love to hear about Jesus. And and indeed, this is a good thing to know about Jesus, is that He came to do just that. Just these things. And when He said to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, He stopped there, because the acceptable year of the Lord was the year of grace. The year of God's mercy. And it wasn't a 360-day year or 365-day year that he was talking about, but but about an extended time. And now for nearly 2,000 years, that grace is still available. That grace to receive the healing of Christ, to receive the, 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 the liberty from the bondages of sin and and, and of death. It's still for today. 
But we have to face the reality of the fact that Jesus came the first time not to judge, but to save. And yet we know that He says, I'm coming again. And this particular passage of Scripture points out the very fact that He not only comes the first time, but He comes a second time. But the second time is just as important as the first, if not more. Because He calls it the day of vengeance of our God. So you can see that the first time He comes, He comes to save. Because you see, no one, no one person can save themselves. No one person can do whatever is necessary to have eternal life with God and with Christ. But to as many as received Him to them, gave He the right to become the sons of God, to as many as believe in His name. Jesus said, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Now, Jesus says, I'm coming again. In the interim, He tells His disciples, I'm going to come for you. Let not your heart be troubled. If you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many mansions. If it weren't so, I would have told you so. But I go to prepare a place for you. And if I do, I'm going to come again to receive you unto myself and to take you to be with me. And there you'll be always. In the interim. But He's coming again. And that as the one who comes to judge the world. The day of vengeance now begins. And so, with that in mind, we we want to begin looking at this promise, the promise of His second coming, and see now the impact of His coming in the last days. We are in this acceptable year of the Lord. These, These days in which we live, the time to receive the knowledge of God, the knowledge of Christ, and to respond to it. It isn't just a matter of receiving, it's a matter of responding. But as Jesus quoted that first part of the prophecy as a description of Himself during His first coming, this brings to mind how often He applied that to Himself. Because in Matthew 11, verses 4 through 6, Jesus answered and He said to them, Go and tell John, being John the Baptist, the things which you hear and see, the blind see and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. And he's saying, these things are happening. That says, I am who I said I am. So if he says he's coming the first time to do that, you can be sure that when he comes again to judge the living and the dead, that he's coming to do just that. It makes clear the two advents of Jesus. In the first coming of the Lord, he came to deal with sin and the sin issue of man that was separating man from God. I said last time that uh, sin impoverishes the soul, therefore Messiah preaches glad tidings to the poor in spirit. Sin breaks the heart, therefore Messiah comes to heal and to bind the broken heart with His loving hands. 
Sin enslaves people, therefore Messiah came to set the captives free from their bondage and imprisonment to sin. And so, he proclaimed that acceptable year of the Lord. But because sin is a crime of cosmic proportions that must be avenged, he also proclaimed a day of vengeance of our God. Isn't it interesting that in this passage of Scripture, you can compare a whole year of grace... The acceptable year of the Lord. You can compare a whole year of grace to a single day of vengeance. It makes you realize something. When the Bible says that to, to, to God a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a, is as a day, He means it. And we've been given this opportunity to have a two thousand years of grace to respond to the good news, to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But if we don't respond to it, and the time comes, you know, we're we're all familiar with that uh, hourglass, right? The sand in the hourglass. It pours little by little up here. And it doesn't even seem to be moving at the top. Well, that's if you have one this big. I'm not talking about those little ones that you time your eggs with, you know. But if you have one this big, you know, the little sand's dripping here. But but if you'll notice something, by the time it gets halfway down, it starts to pick up speed. And time is flowing awfully quick. Though the second is no faster than it was yesterday. A minute's no faster than it was yesterday. But what's happening? I used to use this illustration of a of a cassette tape because you know that's Jurassic Park now man I mean that's like you know a cassette tape is like who uses those anymore who even has a cassette player in their car who even has a cassette player at home I don't know but in, but in any event you know, if you remember a cassette you know, I, you know I don't want to go into the museum and go get one for you but you'll, you'll notice that it's, it's, it's tape and, and on one side you know when you begin the tape it's, it's, it's full of, of, of the, of the uh, listening tape so anyway as it plays this one side is going really quick, and this one's just going nice and easy because it's full of tape on one side. And this one's just, you know, pulling it and pulling it. And then eventually it evens out about the mid- midway, you see. Evens out. But then if you'll notice, after it gets past the midway, the other side now starts to slow down. And the side that had all the tape be- to begin with is really going fast because, you see, it's almost over. It's almost over. That's the time here. It doesn't change time. But why are things getting faster? Why does it seem like days are shorter? I, I mentioned this on Sunday. Why, why, I, I'm sure that all of us have, have said, you know, man, where did the year go? It seemed like just yesterday it was Christmas and, and New Year's, and, and, and you know, now it's, it's going to be May tomorrow. A day of vengeance. And by the way, that day is not going to be one single day. In essence, it's going to be a long period of time. We're dealing with the tribulation that is to come upon this earth. The day of vengeance of our God. We want to believe in the first coming of Jesus to be the need coming. It's the good coming. Oh, Jesus, it, you know, makes us, think of, it makes us think of Christmas. Sweet little baby Jesus, you know. Little baby Jesus grew up. Little baby Jesus was no longer little baby Jesus. He was 12 years old and in the temple teaching the teachers. 
And then little baby Jesus was no longer little baby Jesus, a little, you know, uh, near teen Jesus in the temple now. He's 30 years old. And he's beginning his earthly ministry. And he's pointed out by his, by his, by his own cousin, John, who didn't even know him by sight. Yet through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he sees Jesus and John says to him, Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. For three and a half years, Jesus preaches the gospel of the kingdom of God. And he heals the sick. And he raises the dead. And he makes blind eyes see. Deaf ears hear. Delivers demoniacs. And he proves that he is Messiah of Israel. And we love that. But Jesus also said, I'm coming again. And this world as we know it is not going to be the same. And it would have been nice if, if a century ago or if a generation ago we would have obeyed the Lord and, and, done, you know, and, and loved His Word so much that we would do His Word. But we decided that we wanted God on our own terms. And that's the problem in our day and time. Is man wanting God on his own terms and bypassing the Word of God, which is so rich, so pure, and so holy, and so right? The fact that is the Messiah was to proclaim both the salvation of God and the day of judgment. And this we know that Jesus did faithfully in his earthly ministry and attested to by the apostles. We know this. Luke 19 verse 10 says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. John 3.17 says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Paul attests to this in 1 Timothy 1.15, when he says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. But then consider this. Consider that Jesus says in Matthew 5, verses 29 and 30, If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Folks, Jesus talked about hell. And He talked about a judgment. And people need to believe that if Jesus talks about heaven, He talks about hell even more. And there's one good reason, because He wants no one to go there. Verse 30, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Judgment is coming. That is part of the message that Jesus came to preach. Matthew 25 verse 41. He says, Then he also will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Do you notice that hell, that hell was not created for us? It wasn't created for us. It was created for the devil and his angels. 
but because people are rejecting His truth and rejecting His message of salvation, this becomes their judgment. And so listen to John 3.36. A few verses after that great statement that we just read earlier about Jesus not coming to judge but to save. Jesus says, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So you see the seriousness then. That the gospel can't be taken as, you know, half-heartedly because we read it halfway through. The full gospel of Jesus Christ needs to be seen. He came to save. The question is, from what? This is from what? Because all have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And because sin brings about grief... The Lord has promised that He will comfort all who mourn. And so following the vengeance of the tribulation period, and there is a period coming where that wrath is going to be brought upon this earth. God is going to comfort by giving beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, and the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. This is the extent of the comfort and restoration that God will give His people. And that's, pretty, that's a pretty good extent. That God will give comfort and restoration to His people. While this speaks of the millennial reign of Christ for sure, and it speaks of the comfort that He's going to give to His people Israel in the, in the last days. Nonetheless, this also speaks to our present condition. Just as I was sharing earlier about 2 Chronicles 7.14. Oh yes, it is directed toward Israel, but it's, it's directed to us too. This is directed to us. You see, when Jesus came the first time, He began to fulfill this wonderful prophecy and promise. And even today, He will comfort anyone who turns to Him with their pain and with their suffering. Time and time again, we hear so many testimonies of people that that just, you know, I can just say this, they just finally came to their senses, as it were, and said yes to the Lord, and said no to their selfishness, and, and yes to the love of Christ. And humble themselves to say, Lord, let me bring this problem to you. I've tried to solve it all by myself. I've kind of played with you a little bit, but you know what, Lord, this is, this is too much. Now I realize if I don't come to you, I don't go to anyone at all. Because no one can do anything in my present circumstances. God will comfort anyone who turns to Him with their pain, who turns to them to Him with, his, with their suffering. I want you to think, think of the hardships people go through today. Think of these hardships. Think of the disabilities people are dealing with. Think of the diseases people are dealing with. Think of financial hardships, physical and emotional injuries, marital problems, the loss of loved ones, and even unemployment. That's a big thing today. It burdens people. And it is a painful thing 
to have situations where you are, you are needing to take care of a family, needing to take care of your personal responsibilities, and all of a sudden the carpet is pulled right out from under you. What are you going to do about that? I mean, those are hard times, and those are deep sorrows to overcome for anybody. But I want you to consider what the Scripture says. I tell you this, I want you to consider what Jesus says. Because Jesus says in John 15, 11, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. You know when he says this, he says this to his disciples hours before he is arrested and taken and beaten and suffers for us and for our sins and is taken to the cross. Yet he says, these things I speak to you or I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you, that your joy may be full. John sixteen twenty four. until now you have asked nothing in my name, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. You notice joy and filling, joy and fullness. John seventeen thirteen. in his great high priestly prayer, Jesus says, But now I come to you, speaking to the Father, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. This is his great prayer before he goes to the cross. And again, the Apostle Paul attests to these things. And he says in Romans fourteen seventeen, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Joy in the Holy Spirit. And then consider that a garment... You know, we're talking... These are words that you see in your text there. So I'm just going to... You know, I want you to have your text open, Isaiah 61. And you're going to see every word that we're talking about here. But consider that a garment... Is something that you can put on and take off. And if you, if you get anything tonight, I want you to get this. I don't want you to miss one word of what I'm going to tell you right now. But a garment is something that you can put on and take off. That is exactly the way praise is. This talks about a garment of praise. Now you make the decision. You make the decision whether to slip it on or to take it off. It is the kind of decision that we can make every day of our lives. When our spirits are burdened with heaviness, what do we do? When our spirits are burdened with heaviness, that is the time to praise. That is the time to worship the Lord. It will either be that garment of praise or the spirit of heaviness. Which will it be for you? The garment of praise in the midst of trials or the spirit of heaviness because of the trial? The choice is ours to make. It's our choice. I want to say to you, as, 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 as Joshua said himself in Joshua 24, as for me and my house, we choose the Lord. In essence, he's saying, I choose the Lord. I choose the joy of the Lord because the, the joy of the Lord is my strength. I choose to worship God. I choose to praise God no matter what I see in this world, in this life. The choice is ours. You all heard of the situation that King Jehoshaphat was in in Second Chronicles chapter 20. There he was, leader of the, of the children of Judah. And now they're surrounded. The people are surrounded by three nations. 
the Moabites, the Ammonites, and, and those from Mount Seir. And there, Jehoshaphat gathers the people together, and they pray, they seek the Lord, they're in fear of their lives. In 2 Chronicles 20, verse 15, a message comes through a prophet, it's, he said, Listen, all of you Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem, and you King Jehoshaphat, Thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid nor dismayed because of this great multitude. For the battle is not yours but God's. That's the first thing we need to get into our minds, or our thick minds, or thick heads, and into our hearts. When we face all of those hardships and trials and difficulties and disabilities and, and, and diseases, whatever it may be, the battle is not ours, it is the Lord's. Do you all agree with me or not? I, I'm just wondering because... I want to make sure you're alive, awake, aware of what I'm saying. A little while later in verse 21, it says in 2 Chronicles 20, 21, And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who should sing to the Lord. You'd think he'd appoint machine gunners. You know, you'd think he'd appoint the guys, you know, go out there in tanks. He says he appointed those who would sing to the Lord and who, would, who should praise the beauty of holiness. Keep that in mind. Praising the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army and were saying, Praise the Lord for His mercy endures forever. And you know what happened? When they went out in praise, the enemies of Israel, the enemies of Judah, defeated themselves. They praised in the beauty of holiness. Psalm 29, verse 2, David says, Give unto the Lord the glory, do His name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Psalm 96, verse 9, it says, O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness, tremble before Him all the earth. When you consider the beauty of holiness, consider also what Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter 6, when he saw the Lord high and lifted up. And the train of His majesty filled the temple to the extent that, Paul, that, uh, that Isaiah said, Woe is me. There he was in the beauty of holiness. And the only thing he could consider was how sinful he was. How dirty he was. And it, and it disintegrated him. He said, I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips, for I have seen the Lord. Of hosts. The beauty of holiness. This brings us back to that word beauty. Where the Lord says, I'm going to comfort you and I'm going to give you beauty for ashes. In, a, in other words, I'm going to give you beauty in exchange for ashes. This, this word has in mind a, a beautiful crown or a, a head ornament. You know, we're told in, in Exodus 39 verses 27 and 28 that they made tunics... Uh, artistically woven a fine linen for Aaron and his sons. They were, do, you know, they were making all the things that were necessary for worship. And then it says in verse 28, a turban of fine linen. Notice, exqui exquisite hats. Do you see that phrase? Exquisite hats. Same word for beauty. The very same word in the Hebrew for beauty. Exquisite hats of fine linen, short trousers of fine woven linen. The same word is found in Isaiah chapter 3, but not in the same kind of context. Because here in Isaiah 3 verses 18 through 20, we're told 
that whereas they had all of these things given to them by God, they weren't going to have it any longer because of their disobedience and their rebellion. Notice, in that day the Lord will take away the finery, the jingling anklets, the scarves, the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets, the veils. And notice verse 20, the headdresses. The word is the same for beauty. The leg ornaments, the headbands, the perfume boxes, the charms. And the contrast, of course, beauty for ashes. The contrast is that in mourning, ashes would be cast upon the head. When a person was grieving over loss, over death, they took ashes and they poured it on their head. As in 2 Samuel 13. A terrible situation where, where Tamar was, was raped by her own half-brother. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the robes of many colors that was on her and laid her, head, her hand on her head and went away crying bitterly. These were this, the daughter and son of, of David. She was mourning over this with ashes upon her head. The ashes of our sorrows and the ashes of our sufferings will be replaced with a beautiful crown. For us as believers in Jesus Christ, we have been promised crowns which we will eventually receive and then eventually cast off and cast at the feet of the one that is worthy of all our crowns Jesus Christ in James 1 verse 12 we're told of the crown of life blessed is the man who endures temptation folks we are living in the times of the greatest temptations known to man simply because of all of the resources and accesses that are given to us uh, technologically man today is so bound by these temptations pornography is at an all time high billions and billions and billions of dollars spent coming through every sort of media but what about us as we said on Sunday we have to be different from the world what about us blessed is the man who endures temptation for when he has been approved he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him and I just want to encourage you. You've got to love the Lord. You've got to love the Lord for all that He's already done for you. But I tell you this. Do we love the Lord? Or do we love the world? Jesus said it best. You, you, know, you can serve God and mammon. Mammon, of course, is, is money, but the fact is, anything in the world you either love him 
or you love the world. 1 Peter 5.4 says that when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory. And so there's a crown of life. There's a crown of glory that does not fade away. That's a great promise because you see in this world, everything we have, even if, even if we receive things in this world for the things that we've done, you know what happens? Those things fade away. How many of you ever kept your old, uh, and I'm not talking about those who have received uh, computerized report cards. But those of us that went to school, when you got a paper one and the teacher filled it out, I remember we thought we were real wise in trying to change a grade, you know, and, and, and we take it home and the, you know, your parents said, oh, look, oh yeah, the teacher made a correction and then you'd go back to the teacher, you know. If, if any of you have ever saved any of those report cards, I can tell you this, they faded away, especially the ones that you thought were great because they had all A pluses in them. You know, it's all faded away. The glory you see is not ours, the glory is God's. In 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 8, it says, Finally there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to those who have loved His appearing. The crown of righteousness. If we here in this place today, tonight, are saying, Lord Jesus, come quickly. You know, we sang something of that nature tonight a couple of times, a couple of songs. Hosanna. Lord, save now. It's a plea to God. Lord, save now. That's, that's very similar to the word Maranatha in the Greek that we say in, 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 in our day and time, which is, Lord, come quickly. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Save now, Lord. Because this, you know, for us to say that, for us to desire that, will produce a crown of righteousness. Because we have loved His appearing. We haven't even seen His appearing yet, but we've loved it. And we continue to love it until we see that day. 37 years ago, someone said, Jesus can come at any moment. Keep looking up, your redemption draws near. 37 years ago, I was looking for the coming of Jesus. 37 years later, I'm still looking. I'm just as excited. No, I'm more excited now because it's closer to His coming. But I can tell you this, I have never, ever gotten to that point where I wonder whether it's going to happen or not. I know it's going to happen because Jesus said I'm coming. And if I've loved His appearing, I just want to know, Lord, if you give me a crown, that's yours anyway. I just love Your appearing. I've loved it then, I love it now. Lord Jesus, come quickly. This verse here brings us back to the last thought in verse 3 of our text. Trees of righteousness. Trees of righteousness. 
The place of restoration of God's people will indeed be glorious. And the trees of righteousness and the planting of the Lord is the picture of strength. And so what the Lord is saying here when, when, he's, when he's speaking of trees of righteousness, He's saying that His people who once were weakened by all of their own sin and all of the things that have happened through all the chastenings that have taken place in their lives, they will one day be planted as trees of righteousness. Strong trees that will never be overturned, never be taken out of the ground. Though the winds and the storms of this life may come against you, You can remain standing, and as you do, the Lord is glorified. You stand through those temptations. You stand through those trials. God gets glorified. And when the world looks on, they will see the companionship that you have with Jesus as the source of that strength. That companionship, that communion, that fellowship with God and with Christ is what strengthens you. You don't have it, you don't have that strength. Pure and simple. And without Christ, you and I would be uprooted. With Him we bring forth righteousness. Let me clarify. We bring forth righteousness which is right thinking and right living despite adversity and affliction. Righteousness is right thinking and right living despite adversity and affliction. Paul says in Philippians chapter 8 verses, uh, I'm sorry, Philippians 1 verses 8 through 11, For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ, And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled, notice, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. So we're not righteous in and of ourselves. The righteousness that we put on is the righteousness of Christ. But in putting on the righteousness of Christ, we give glory and praise to God. Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That is the key. A holy nation. His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Folks, that's a declaration I don't want you to miss. We are out of darkness into His light. You're in darkness, I'm sorry, but you've got to get out of that darkness. And the only way you get out of that darkness is to come to the light of Jesus Christ. You can try it in any other, different, in any other kind of way, but you cannot find it until you find it in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And then He said to His disciples, You are the light of the world. If you have me in you. This verse leads us to the next section of our text. In Isaiah 61, which is verses 4 through 9. Now I'm really going to fly, okay? So stay with me. I've spent so much time in the first part of of all of this. For a good reason. But now we have to move on. Verse 4 says, And they shall rebuild the old ruins. They shall raise up the former desolations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. 
Strangers shall stand and feed your flocks, and the son of the foreigner shall be your plowman and your vine dressers. But you shall be named the priests of the Lord. They shall call you the servants of our God. You shall eat the riches of the Gentiles, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, you shall have double honor, and instead of confusion, they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess double. Every, uh, I'm sorry, everlasting joy shall be theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery for burnt offering. I will direct their, their work in truth and will make with them an everlasting covenant. Their descendants shall be known among the Gentiles and their offspring among the people. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are the posterity of whom the Lord has blessed. It is a beautiful thought that God loves to restore ruins. You know, it's interesting. You go to Israel today and uh, practically every place you go out in, 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 you know, away from the bigger cities and whatnot, they're excavating, you know, the archaeologists and all are doing a tremendous job of excavating uh, all of the old uh, places that we actually read about in the scriptures to let us know, by the way, that the scriptures are true. They've always been true. And so when they find these places, they realize, hey, this is, this is here and there in the Bible and whatnot. But, but the Lord does something greater than that. He loves and He wants to use His people to restore and to rebuild things that are broken down and ruined, especially in their lives. That is what life will be like when Jesus Christ returns to set up God's kingdom on earth. And nine things are mentioned in this passage. Nine things that we want to look at very quickly. The first thing is that the nation of Israel will be restored. All the destroyed cities will be rebuilt. That's in verse 4. Secondly, positions of authority will be given to God's people. That's verse 5. They will receive rewards from the Lord. One of those rewards being an assignment of influence and supervision. In other words, they will be called the priests and the servants of God. Foreigners will also be given the responsibilities of tending flocks, fields, and vineyards. Foreigners being, of course, Gentiles. No longer oppressing Jerusalem, but serving the capital of Messiah. Serving Zion, serving Jerusalem. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 2 and 3, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more than, uh, how much more things that pertain to this life? Uh, You know, these are the ones that are going to be in the kingdom, the millennial kingdom, and, uh, and, and leading as, as priests to those who will be working on their behalf. Revelation 3.10 says, because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. And so there's, there are those special gifts, those special things that are given in that, that particular time. A very special name. The third thing is a very special name and honor will be given to God's people. That is priests of the Lord, ministers of God. Verse 6. Uh, Paul says this of the church. In, um, I'm sorry, John says this of the church in Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. It says, From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. 
The next thing is that Jerusalem will be the world's capital and worship center. The wealth of the world will pour into the city and the believers will praise Him for these riches. Again, that's in verse 6. And then the next point is, that, is found in verse 7. A double inheritance will be given to Israel. A double portion of abundance in the promised land. A double portion. Instead of shame. Double honor. Interesting. Jesus said in John 14 verses 1 through 4, Let not your heart be troubled. I quoted this a little bit earlier. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know. And the way, you know. That thought of what God wants to give His people. We bring shame. God replaces it with honor. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. The millennial kingdom is about the land that was promised by God to Israel. That land will be given to them. But consider that after a thousand years, a new heaven and a new earth will come about, and a new Jerusalem coming out of heaven. The point of the matter is, there's a double inheritance. There is what God gives as He promised, and there is what He says will be eternal. This is why I'm pointing these particular scriptures out to you. The next point is, is that justice, peace, and security will rule in Messiah's kingdom. Verse 8. Justice, peace, and security will rule in Messiah's kingdom. And there will be no lawlessness. Lawlessness abounds today, folks. Lawlessness abounds today. Terribly abounds. but not in the kingdom of God. And sacrifices aren't enough. Look at verse 8, if you will, for just a moment. There's one little phrase there I want you to see. The Lord says, I hate robbery for burnt offering. You all see that? I hate robbery for burnt offering. You know what he's saying with that? He's saying that sacrifices aren't enough. Sacrifices aren't enough. A sacrifice such as a burnt offering can really just amount to robbery if the heart isn't right. How many times did the, did the Israelites, how many times did the Hebrew people give offerings unto the Lord but their hearts were never right? Your lips praise me but your hearts are far from me, God said to them many times. Your lips tell me one thing but your heart says another. You see, God knows the heart. God reads the heart. And sacrifices just aren't enough. It's just robbery. You're robbing from God. Read the book of Malachi. There's some people who think that that's a tremendously positive uh, book. It, well, it, you know, it is in, in a certain way. 
They'll want to encourage you to, to, to know one verse of Scripture that says, you know, that God will open the windows of heaven if we tithe to them, certain people. God will open the windows of heaven. But you know why God says this in Malachi? If you read the whole book, if you read the whole prophecy, you realize God is not happy with His people because they were not giving Him what, what was His due. Well, that's for another time. Your hearts were right. Messiah will establish an everlasting covenant with His people. It says there again in verse 8. Isaiah 55 verse 3 says, Incline your ear and come to me. Here in your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. The sure mercies of David. Jeremiah 32 verses 40 and 41. God says, And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from doing them good. But I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. Yes, I will rejoice over them to do them good. And I will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. And then God's people will be honored before the world. Verse 9. All the world will acknowledge God's blessings to Israel, which was one of the promises given to Abraham. A very important promise, by the way. In Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I've got to tell you that nations better understand this particular verse of Scripture. Because the nations that do not bless the children of Israel will be judged for not blessing them. It is either a blessing or a curse that we will receive. And this is another reason why we need to pray for our nation today. Because our nation today is trying to encourage Israel to compromise, to give land for peace, when in fact they're taking away the land that God promised. And we can't do that. You know, that's for a whole other study. As a matter of fact, I dealt with this many times in prophetic updates. The more we give away land... And it's not even ours to give. That's the problem. That's another, that's another time. I've got to move on. We'll be here all night if I start touching on these things. The coming of Messiah now. This is the ninth thing, I think. I said nine things. The coming of Messiah will bring great joy and rejoicing. And we're going to see that in the last two verses. Verses 10 and 11. So we're finally there. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments. Who is that? It's Jesus. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its bud, as the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all nations. In these two verses, 
The citizens of Jerusalem will be praising God for two reasons. First of all, they will be praising God because the Lord has clothed them in salvation and in righteousness. The second reason is because the Lord causes the seed of righteousness and praise to spring up in all the nations of the world. Here was the very purpose for the Savior's coming. It was to bring the joy of righteousness and salvation to the earth. To bring the joy of righteousness and salvation to the earth. And so listen to these last two verses of Scripture, beginning in Luke chapter 15. You all know this, the parable of the prodigal son. The son said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. Probably the first right thing he said in his whole life. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe, by the way, that is the robe of righteousness. Bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand, identifying him with a family. And sandals on his feet. And bring the fatted calf here, and kill it. And let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead, and is alive again. He was lost, and is found. And they began to be merry. That is the joy of the Lord the joy of salvation the seed of righteousness blossoming before all nations Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 17-21 and I'll close with this therefore if anyone is in Christ he is a new creation all things have passed away Behold, all things have become new. Now, all things are of God, who has reconciled us to Himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to Himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us, We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For He made Him when you know sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. The righteousness of God. We have been made to become the righteousness of God in Christ. You see, it's not our righteousness. It's not us having to be good to try to be right before God so that God can notice us and then eventually because He notices us then He might be merciful toward us. We learned that lesson already on Sunday when we said that even while we were still sinners Christ died for the ungodly. Even while we were still dead in our sins the Lord demonstrated His love. You know, I think about what Paul said 
to the elders in Miletus, the Ephesian elders, before he leaves them, when he said, I, I took, warned you of all of these things day and night for three years with tears warning you of the deceptions that were going to come upon the church. And I've been saying in the last couple of weeks that those deceptions have come. They're in, our church, they're, in, they're in the church, the body of Christ today. Deceiving, confusing, confounding. And I want to say that, you know, it's, it's one thing to say, listen, let, let's get right with God. Let, let's do the right thing. Let's, let's get our hearts right with God. Let's humble ourselves before the Lord. Let's confess our sins. Let's repent of those sins. Let's turn from all of these things now because the Lord can come at any moment. Now I can get blue in the face telling you. But I'll say this, one day... We won't be able to tell you anymore. That time will be up. The harvest is past. Summer is ended. And you are not saved. That's the Bible. That's the scripture. That's the word of God. We're telling the time. When that acceptable year of the Lord that is extended through 2,000 years of time and is still here today, that day will end. Tribulation will begin. And then you can count the days and know to the exact day when the Lord is going to come. No longer to save the world or to bring salvation to men, but to come to judge the world for its rejection of Christ. So, my encouragement to you is love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Give your lives to Jesus. Wholeheartedly give your lives. Because I'll tell you this. If I'm wrong, what's it going to matter? If the scriptures don't really true, what's it going to matter? But if the word of God is true and the things that Jesus Christ has said are true then you better be ready. God's love is still present. God's love is still here. God's love is is always going to be because God God never changes. But remember this. God is also just and righteous and holy, holy, holy. That never changes either.
have to have your your life right with God. Let's pray.